as you know, we are going through the gospel according to Mark. And so we've had an introduction, we've done week chapter one, we've done chapter two, and so now we're into chapter three. Um, And I'm really, really excited about chapter three, because I don't know how many of you read it this week, but if you did read it, I hope that you got to some points and went, oh, what's that about? Because there's some verses in, in Mark, chapter three, that I know people that hold on to and have really, really struggled with and it's actually impacted their Christian walk because they haven't understood some of the things that Jesus actually says himself in Mark chapter 3. So I'm really excited that we get to have a look at this and I hope that by the end of our time together, you will have a better understanding of what Jesus is saying and if you ever meet anybody that actually has hang-ups about some of the things that are said here, you better go, oh, I know how to, to talk to that. So let's start by reading Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and it says this. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Now, I have to stop right there, because if anybody knows me, you know that I can't go past another time and just leave it as if we all know what's going on. So this is where we're going back into chapter 2, because Mark chapter 2 23, which is the very last sort of bit in Mark chapter 2, says this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And so Mark is talking about another time where Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath. So when it's talking about another time, it's just talking about another time, another Sabbath day, if that makes sense. And that's really important to know. Because as we looked at in the introduction to Mark, Mark is not in chronological order. Mark isn't putting things as they happened. He's putting them because he wants to actually make a point. And so the stories that we read and the order that Mark is in is actually to lead us somewhere. And so he's talked about one time when Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sabbath all had this conversation which is at the end of chapter 2. And so now we're looking at another time when a similar thing took place. So let's keep on reading. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they may, might kill Jesus. So Jesus happens to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Not an unusual thing at all. But there's some people there that are deliberately pretty much following Jesus around. And they want to watch him and see what he's going to do. And Jesus knows this. So instead of doing things in secret, he gets the guy to stand up in front of everybody and talks in front of everybody. Now, this bit of Mark is actually found in Matthew as well. And Matthew has a much longer version of what Jesus says. But Mark, again, just gets straight to the point. And the point is, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good 
or to do evil, to save life or to kill. And they remain silent because they know that any way they answer is not going to help them. Now, last week Matt touched on the Pharisees. Does anybody remember who the Pharisees are? Yep, he political. Yep, they're pretty much a religious group that says, we know the law, we know it really well, we follow it really well, and you all should do what we say. That's a really very simple way of thinking of the Pharisees. But they knew the law really, really well. And they believed that by upholding the law, they were doing what God wanted to. So not only should they uphold the law, but they should go and make sure everybody else is upholding the law too. So you could look at them and say they were actually trying to live a life that was pleasing to God. They actually were in their own minds. The thing is, they had become so religious, so legalistic, that they completely forgot what the law was about. The law is about good. And so they had these ridiculous things that they would or wouldn't do to make themselves seem righteous and not even thinking about other people and what may have been of benefit to them. Now, the Herodians, does anybody know who they are? They were like a political party that thought Herod was pretty good and wanted political power as much as possible. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians were not friends. They actually didn't like each other. But when it came to Jesus, his enemy is my like best friend because if we're both enemies of Jesus, then we're both going to actually join together. And so the, it's really interesting to know that Mark is telling us that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they may kill Jesus. Because, as I said, these two are opposites. They're not meant to actually enjoy. They both want power for themselves. They don't want each other's power. But they join together because Jesus is such a problem for them. that They get together and they go, okay, what are we going to do about this Jesus guy? We're in Mark chapter 3, and already Mark is telling us and pointing to stuff that's going to happen further down the track. Because they're plotting not to do anything but to actually kill Jesus. We're going to come back to the Pharisees a bit later. The next bit of Mark 3 that we come to is this story. And this is where Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all the things he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, I don't know how you would say that, Indomia, and across the regions of the Jordan and the Tyre and the Siron. So this is a map of what Jerusalem looked like around Jesus was, when Jesus was around. So Jesus is in Galilee. People have come from Jerusalem, from Judea, all the way down the bottom, from the very top, across the Jordan River. So they pretty much have come from all over to see what Jesus was on about, to see what's going on. Now have a think about that for a minute. There is no Facebook. There is no mobile phones. There is no email. There's not even any telephones. There's not even really a great postal service that can get you things within a couple of days. Jesus is making such an impact that not only is word spreading around him, but people are coming from all areas to find out what's going on here. So Jesus is actually drawing people to himself from all over the place because they all want to know what's going on. They all want to know who this Jesus guy is. So because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So that's how 
big this crowd is and how great they are, that they're not just tamely sitting around the place, but they actually are really crowding in on him so much so he's like, get a boat, so if I need to escape, I can. For he had healed many, so those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. When the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. People are so wanting God, Jesus, so wanting to know him and to touch him even because they want to be healed. So they're coming from all over because they all want what Jesus has. Mark three thirteen to 19 says this. Jesus went onto a mountainside and he called those that he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they may be with him and that he may send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name, I'm not even going to attempt it, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the Odysseus, Simon, the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Again, we see the interesting thing about Mark. He's already telling us that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And Simon, who to whom he gave the name Peter. The story of Jesus saying to Peter, you are my rock and on this rock I'll build your church is actually not found in the book of Mark, which I found really interesting given that Mark is writing Peter's story, really, his experience of Jesus. But Mark is actually just wanting to get to the point. He only wants the main points to be made in these stories. He doesn't want a lot of you know, fluff around the place. But it's important to know that Simon is called Peter because that's an important bit of information when he's going around being called Peter now. So these are the 12 disciples that are appointed. And they get appointed so that they may be with him and that he may send them out to preach. Beforehand, we had spirits being told, don't tell people that I am the Son of God. And later in Mark, there's times where Jesus again says, don't tell anybody what you know yet. But when I'm ready, I want the right people at the right time to speak my name. And this is what he's setting up with his 12 disciples. Then again, Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. That's how massively crowded this house is. Can't even get to some food. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Belzebub, the prince of demons. Uh, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So let's have a look at our map again. Now, does anybody know Jesus' mother and brothers, where would they have come from? Yep. So not too much of a distance to get to where Jesus is because Jesus is pretty much hanging around Galilee in the Lake of Galilee. So it's the, the same sort of area. But these priests, where have they come from? Jerusalem. So they have come from Jerusalem for one reason only. Does anybody remember what that reason is? To pretty much call him out. To say, oh, he must be Belzebub. It must be the demons that is driving out demons. They didn't come to see the great miracles that Jesus was doing. They didn't come to be healed. They came to accuse him. That's the main reason they made the trip. And then this is what Jesus calls them over, them being the teachers of the law that's come up. 
So Jesus calls them over to him and he begins to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one enters a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. I'm just going to stop there and we'll look at the next few verses in a minute. Basically, these guys are saying, you are from the devil because you're bringing these spirits out of these people. It must be the devil that's doing that. And Jesus says, why would they do that? If a spirit of the devil is working in someone, why would the spirit want that spirit to stop its job? Wouldn't they want more spirits to be working in people? To have more power? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that you would work against yourself. Because if you're working against yourself, you're actually just dividing yourself and not actually completing what your mission is. It's pointless. It can't happen. If you want to actually rob someone, the best way of robbing them is to neutralise them in the first place, to tie them up. And once you've tied them up, then you can go and take what's there. But if you don't actually do anything about, especially if it's a strong man in this case, if you don't do anything about the strong man that's living in the house, what luck are you going to have actually going in there and taking anything off him? He's going to stop you. So it's really just trying to show how ridiculous the statement is that this is the work of the devil because it goes against what the devil would want. He would want his work to continue, not to be stopped. These next verses, verse 28 I'm reading from. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. That sounds pretty good. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an internal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. You read this and you have to stop and wonder, oh no, there's a sin that is unforgivable. How does it actually work? When I was in, well, a number of years ago, I was leading a youth group and I remember having a girl ring me up in tears um, and wanting to speak to me. And so I went over to her house straight away and she was devastated. She was distraught beyond all measure because she had just read Mark 3. And she came away and said, I have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I can never be forgiven. I'm stuffed. And she was completely distraught and devastated by this. And there are a number of people, other people I've known too, that have gone, I've done the unforgivable. I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. And that is a sin that Jesus clearly says cannot be forgiven. And so I think it's really important that we actually stop right here and have a talk about these verses. Because if we miss them, then for some of you, you go, of course, that doesn't mean anything that can't be the same, what it means and just move on. But for some, maybe even in this room or some people that you meet, they're going to read this verse. They're going to say, I've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. I can't be forgiven. And if you can't unpack that with them, how devastating and distraught is that person going to be or yourself is going to be? So the first thing that we need to remember is that never, ever can we take one verse of the Bible and make a whole theology out of it, or a whole belief system out of it. Yeah, that is really, really dangerous. 
What we need to do if we're ever going to go, okay, what on earth is this talking about and what am I going to believe and how am I going to live that out is we need to make sure that it's consistent across everything else that we know. Okay? So what do we know about forgiveness? Where does forgiveness come from? It comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. And how are we forgiven? By his blood and his resurrection. It's his blood that covers us. And so when God looks at us, he sees us through the blood of Jesus and we are forgiven. Does anybody know what Romans 10.9 says? For if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, then I will be saved. There's many verses in the Bible that actually tells us if we repent, he will forgive. So the big picture of the Bible tells us that we have a God that wants to forgive and that Jesus' blood was enough. And Jesus' death and resurrection covers everything. So if that's the case, what's this unforgivable sin? Firstly, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit? To be our counsellor, to point us to Jesus, to lead us into all truth. There's so many other things to give us gifts to develop us so that we can become more like Jesus. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. So the role of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to Jesus. So if you are saying the Holy Spirit are not paying any attention to you, what is the end result of that? You're not going to be paying any thought to Jesus or to God. The Pharisees, who are the people that Jesus says this to, if you remember earlier... In Mark, this is what Jesus says about the Pharisees. He looked around at them, which were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, at them in anger and was deeply distressed by their stubborn hearts. So we have a group of people whose main aim is not to hear what Jesus has to say and make a judgment on that. The judgment's already been made. Jesus' anger at their, and dismay at their stubborn hearts shows us that these Pharisees were not about wanting to know what God had to say in the situation. All they wanted to do was to trip Jesus up and be able to prove that he was wrong or to stop other people from believing in him. So when we come back to Jesus saying, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven, they are guilty of an internal sin. What Jesus is saying is, if people come to the point where they will not listen to the Holy Spirit, the one that actually leads us to Christ, there is no hope for them. Because if they continue to do that, they will die. And then that sin is an internal sin because that choice is made forever. Is that making sense to people? And so the unforgivable sin is not a sin that is unforgiven in this lifetime. It's a sin that is continued and then cannot be forgiven. So if anybody is worried about, you know, that they've committed the unforgivable sin, the answer is you so have not. Those who don't care about what the Holy Spirit is saying, those who don't even acknowledge that there is a Holy Spirit, those are the ones that may depending on what happens between the point you're talking to them and the end of their life, may come up against the unforgivable sin. But the unforgivable sin is not following what the Holy Spirit is saying forever. So anybody in this room who ever questions and thinks that they've committed the unforgivable sin, they haven't. The fact that you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin means 
that you want to follow what God wants you to do. And that is where it's really important to understand what this is saying and to realize that it's about how we treat the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis, not in a moment. Because we've all had moments where we haven't listened to the Holy Spirit. I myself had one this week. Matt rang me up this week and said, oh, we should think about Chips Camp. Which one of us are going to go? And I said to him, oh, we've got so many other things going on. I wasn't thinking either of us would go. And he went, oh, okay, well, um, I said, oh, but, you know, I don't know, maybe we should, I don't know. And then the conclusion we came to pretty much because of me was, if they will say to self, if you really need us, one of us will come. If you don't need us, don't worry about it. And so what does self do but come up here? And what does he talk about? But don't wait to be needed, but if you want to go, go. So I went and got my form straight away and we'll fill it in and I will go on Chips Camp. Now, I now I actually believe that God probably wanted me to go on Chips Camp when Matt rang and said, hey, should one of us go on Chips Camp? But I was inconvenienced. You know, there's too many other things to do. That isn't committing the unforgivable sin. That's me not listening to the Holy Spirit and God giving me another chance and me now listening. But even if I ignored self and ignored what the Holy Spirit was saying and still went, too busy, too much, I'll wait to the last minute and if I get that text from Joel or self to say, we really need two more buddies, then I'll jump in and, you know, save them. Um, not really save them, but do you know what I mean? Like that's when I'll, you know, I'll keep the weekend free so I can jump in at the last minute. That's not committing the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is where the Holy Spirit is trying to lead us to Jesus, which is his job, and we ignore it. Or don't even pay any attention to him. Because the Holy Spirit is working not just in our lives who acknowledge him, but in, even in the lives that don't acknowledge him. Because he's always wanting people to come to know him. So the person that you think of that you think is so far away from God, the Holy Spirit is speaking to him or her. The Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is trying to say, look at this. There is a God. He loves you. He wants forgiveness. And it's when a person says, that's just coincidence, not going to pay attention, and continues to not pay attention, then eternity is set for them. And that is the only sin that is unforgivable. So hopefully that clears it up. And if you didn't have that question, then don't worry about it. But I didn't want you to have that question. Or, as I said, have someone else come to you with that question and you go, um, I don't know. Now we come to another really, really interesting verse. And it's all about Jesus' mother and his brothers. And this is what we, when we continue to read Mark 3, it tells us. Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those sitting in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. Another really interesting verse when you look at it. Now Jesus isn't saying, I have no idea who my mothers and brothers are. I don't know who you're talking about. I've forgotten that they even exist. That is not when he says who, you know, who they are. He's not actually wanting him to say, oh, don't you know, it's James and it's Mary and it's, you know, whoever else Jesus' brothers are. To understand this, again, we need to make sure that we don't read this one verse and we make a whole theology out of it. 
And it could be easy to read this verse and say, my natural family means nothing. I don't need to care about them. I don't even need to pay any attention to them. My mothers and brothers, who are they? I don't really care. That is a really, really bad theology to bring from this verse. And because what we need to remember to understand this verse is that Mark actually told us about Jesus' brothers and mother before. Earlier on in Mark 3, it says this, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And then the bit above in Mark 31, 331, is when they finally arrived to where Jesus is. Does that make sense? So what we see here is a really sensible family. What are they hearing? Your brother, your son, is not even able to eat food. And so as a mum, you go, that is ridiculous. My son needs to eat. I will go and sort this out. Now, they do actually say that when it says they came to take charge of him, it pretty much meant they went to come and drag him back home. They wanted to come and say, this is ridiculous. You're out of your mind. You can't even eat. You have to look after yourself. Looking after yourself is really, really important. So we're going to take you back home so we can help you look after yourself. That makes sense, doesn't it? You can understand where Mary and the brothers are coming from. All they want to do is look after their child, their brother. But we see that Jesus, we have none of it. Jesus says, don't even know who they are. Now, I don't know about you, but if my son said to me, oh, I don't even know who you are, and a crowd of people would be like, don't be ridiculous. Like, of course you know who I am. Get back out here right now. (laughs) Now, my son's 12, so it's a bit different to when you're like 30 plus. But no, I could see my mum still doing that. My mum's brilliant, but I could still see her going. This is she even said this to us. Boy, you live such a busy life. Remember you look make sure you look after yourself. You don't have to have so many people in your home all the time. Like make sure that you guys are staying spending time as a family together. Reasonable things to think about. The point is not Jesus saying, My mum and my brothers mean nothing to me. Oh, and if you're wondering, everybody is it's pretty much a very big conclusion, even though we're not t- totally sure, that Joseph has died. So between Joseph, uh, between Jesus being born and Jesus' ministry, we never hear about um, Joseph while Jesus is ministering. So the conclusion is, and everybody pretty much is like, is, this is what people hold to, is that Joseph is, has died. So that's why they're talking about not the father, not because he's not important, but because he's not there. But it's not about... Jesus saying, my family means nothing to me. Because we'll see other times in the gospel where Jesus is actually conscious of his family. When he's about to die, what does he say? But, hey, look after my mother. Doesn't use those words, but that's the tenure version. So Jesus is not saying our mums and our dads and our family means nothing. What he is saying is God's mission is so much more important. And that's something that we actually don't like to hear. We like to think that my family should come first. So if God is calling me to do something and my son wants me to do something, I should do what my son wants, not what God's calling me to do. 
that is actually not a biblical principle. And it's not one that we like. Because we like to think that the loving thing to do is to put our family first. But Jesus makes it really clear, not only in this passage, because again, as I said before, you can't just take one passage and make a theology out of it. But when Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead, he's not saying, I don't care that this person has died. He's saying, what I'm calling you to do is much more important than what has just happened here on earth. When Jesus says, whoever puts their hand to the plough and looks back is not worthy of me, he's not saying, don't look around and see what your surroundings are like. He's saying, what I have called you to do is much more important than whatever it is that is behind you. Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. It's simple, but it's so hard. And what Jesus is pointing out here is the reason his brothers and mother have come is not to further the mission that God's called him to, but to actually take him away from it. They've come to say, you need to think about yourself more and we're going to help you do it. So come back home with us. We'll feed you. We'll, look at, we'll make sure this crowd doesn't make it so that you can't eat and can't sleep and follow you everywhere. We'll protect you. All really nice, noble, loving things, but not what God had Jesus' mission That wasn't what Jesus' job was. That wasn't what God had called him to. God had called him to be in the crowd. God had called him to call disciples. God had called him to be in the place that he was. And so for the mother and brothers to come and say, we want to take you out of what God is calling you to, Jesus is going, nup. Only those whose, whoever does God's will is my brother and my mother and my, and my sister. Whoever gets that this is what God has called me to and is going to encourage me in what God has called me to, those are the people I'm going to listen to. Not that I'm going to ignore my family, not that I'm not going to be loving towards them because you can't get away with that. The Bible, I can show you so many other verses in the Bible that tells us that we have to love our family even if they want nothing to do with God. But what we cannot do is let family become more important than what God has called us to. And that doesn't matter which family it is doesn't matter if you've got the best family in the world. What God has called you to has to take priority because we cannot put our hand to the prow and look behind. And that's why following God is not actually easy. It is actually hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes commitment. It says, I will do what God's will is no matter what the cost is. And that is what Mark is pointing out right here. That if we make family our idol, which I must say in the West we do a lot. We say that family is the most important thing in the world. Oh, I'm not going to go where, oh, sorry, I can't come to that thing. Not because it's a good, not because it's not why God wants me to, but because I've got to do family things. Family things are important. I'm just about to go away on a week with my family on holidays, just the four of us. And I don't think that's not doing what God wants me to do. I think that is doing what God wants me to do. Because God calls us to rest. Jesus went away and withdrew from people. And he separated himself to get the rest. He spent time with his disciples. He spent time, he did spend time with his mother and his brothers. But the more important point here is what is God's will And don't let anything distract you from what God's will is, even if it's family. 
And that is what Jesus is saying. Whoever does God's will, that's the people I'm following. And mum and, you know, come, come follow me and make me meals as I go. That's what I'd be saying. When I feed me, you come and live, stay with me and you can, you can do with the cooking and make sure we're all good and, you know, but come and, and be part of what I'm doing. Don't take me away from what I'm doing. Um, and it can, as I said, in the Western world, and I think these days family can be a really big idol that we need to be mindful of. Other times it can be other things too. But to be aware of what is taking us away from the will of God is really important. Not because it's easy, but because that is what it costs. And it does cost to follow Jesus. And the thing that I loved about this morning was if you heard all the songs that we sang, most of them all said something along the lines of, God, you are my everything. I will follow you. Like you are the winds in my sail because I know that you're good because I know that you're worth it. The sacrifice is worth it, but if we don't acknowledge it's a sacrifice, we're fooling ourselves. And if we want to be true disciples of Jesus, it's going to cost. Jesus makes that really clear. He doesn't try and tell you that it's one thing and then, oh, now that you're in it, I'm going to change it. Makes it really clear it's going to cost. And sometimes that means that you're away from your son's birthday, even though it's, you know, important to you. doesn't mean that your son's not important. It means what you're doing is more important and he's got many birthdays and he'll be fine, which he will be. I'm missing my son's birthday this year. Um, but he's quite happy about that because he gets to hang out with his grandparents and thinks he'll get extra spoiled by them and then I'll spoil him because I'm missing his birthday. So he thinks he's like winning, winning, winning. These are some people that we see in chapter 3 of Mark. We see the Pharisees, and I put the Pharisees up there. Sometimes they're called, you know, the teachers of the law. I'm just putting them in the same boat. Um, large crowds, Jesus' disciples, his mother and his brothers. And they all actually are asking this one question. What are we going to do about Jesus? The Pharisees are asking it in a, what are we going to do about him? How can we get rid of him? The crowds are asking it in, how, what are we going to do about Jesus? How can I get close enough to him? How can I get what he wants? The disciples are saying, we're going to follow. And his mothers and brothers are saying, how can we get him to eat? How can we get him to look after himself? He's too focused on what his mission is. But we need to actually ask ourselves a question. What are you going to actually do about Jesus? And it may seem like a simple question and a question that most of us don't need to answer because we've already made that decision. But I would like to put to you that it's a question that we need to ask ourselves often. Because making a one decision to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, that's a decision that we need to make every day. That's a decision that should, is, is not just a fantastic, I get to go to heaven, so I'm just going to sit down and now I'm just going to live life how I want to, or, you know, and then God will forgive me, so it doesn't really matter. But to be a disciple of Jesus, to be one who walks in his footsteps, it's actually going to cost us. And if it's not costing you, I would wonder what is God saying that you're not doing? 
because not that it isn't worthwhile, not that it's not beneficial, but that is sacrifice. Jesus tells us that too many times for it just to be a sacrifice for one second and, you know, and no, no sacrifice for the rest of our life. Time and time again, he tells us that following him is going to cost us. Now, what it costs me and what it costs you may be different because what's important to me and what's important to you is different. Today, this afternoon, um, Matt and I and um, the kids are going to be going to the football. We're going to see Hawthorne versus Richmond. Now, the only reason we're going is because we've got free tickets. Cardinia, like, and Richmond have this thing going on and they sent an email and said, if you want to go to a game, let us know. These are the games you can choose and you can get free tickets. And so we went, oh, let's go, let's pick this date. So far out in advance, we don't know what's going on, but we'll go then. Walking to the car, walking from the car to church this morning, and I'm thinking, nope, it's not worth it. I don't barrack for Hawthorne. I don't barrack for Richmond. And even if Geelong was playing, who I do barrack for, I'm not going out in this cold. It was freezing cold. It was raining. I'm thinking maybe it can be a boys' activity. Yes, Matt, you need to spend time with your son. Go, go spend time with your son. Oh, I'm thinking, oh, we have free tickets to the movies. Maybe we should, we should just forgo. Um, it doesn't cost us anything. Like the tickets didn't cost us anything. Just let's all go to the movies as a family. That's still hanging out together. We don't need to go in the freezing cold. Now, I do notice that the sun is out. I haven't been outside to know how warm or cold it is. So we'll see whether I will make it to the football this afternoon. But the cost wasn't worth it for me. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is the cost worth it for us? And sadly, sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes people actually look Jesus right in the face and say, it's too hard. But let me tell you, the cost is worth it. We sang about the goodness of God. We know about his love. We talked about and, you know, and shared this morning about the miracles that we've seen God do. It is so worth living life that God has for us. He has the best life possible for us. He has life in abundance, living life his way. The problem is that we try and do both. We try and live life our way and live life God's way. And that's when it becomes messy and hard and becomes so much more complicated than it was ever meant to be. I get whole free will, but I've often said to God, if I get why I need free will to come to you, but why now that I've made that decision, can't you just switch off my free will so all I can do is do what you want to do, do what you want me to do. But God doesn't want us to do that because he wants us to daily take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. And we find when we do that, that there is joy, there is peace, there is love, there is all the gifts of the Spirit. There is so much more than we ever have when we try and do it ourselves. But it takes sacrifice and takes cost. And when we put things before what God is asking us to do, that's never going to turn out well. If you put God before your family, I am... I want to say 100% sure, but I don't know if I really am 100% sure. I'm very sure that God will bless you and your family and your relationship. Because God has the best way to do relationships. So if we're living a life that's pleasing to God, it doesn't mean that we ignore everybody. Because we know that's not what God has in store for us. 
God tells us to love people. God tells us to actually serve other people. So if we're serving other people, if we're serving our family, if we're loving the way that God wants us to love, there will be times when we will say, sorry, everybody, I'm going on holidays with my family and the rest of you are just going to have to deal with life without me. It doesn't mean that you never do anything with anybody else because God calls us to be in relationship and be with people. But it's what God is calling you to do. Let's do that. And when that's spending time with our family, let's do it. And when it's doing something else, let's do that. And let's make sure that our priority, the question is not what is, like the only question is what is God saying and am I doing it? And because when we get back to that, that's when we are actually just simply following Jesus. What is God, what are you saying, God? Whatever you tell me, I'm going to do it. And that is the life that God's called us to. That's the life of the disciple. And sometimes it is not doing what you want, but it's doing the much better thing. And you know what? Sometimes it is doing what you want. Like it isn't a doom and gloom thing, but it is a thing that says God's priority is more important than mine. And if my mum and my brothers come and say, hey, come, let us look after you, I might take them up on the offer later, but I'm not going to do it now because I'm in the middle of healing people and... you know, whatever Jesus like and talking to people and being involved in what God has for me. A disciple follows Jesus. And so whatever he says, that's what we want to do. And that's a choice that we make every time we make a choice. Am I going to do what God says or am I just going to do what I want? And even as a church, that's what we want to do. What is God saying to us as Catalyst? And if God is saying it, then we do it. If he's not saying it, we don't do it. If we're unsure, we wait till we're sure and then we do it. That is the life of a disciple. And that's the best life that we can live because God created us. And the way he created us is for us to live an abundant life full of joy, full of peace, where our relationships are how he wants them to be because we are actually living a life that is pleasing to God and not just doing what's comfortable and what's easy and what's convenient. So come on the chips camp if God is calling you to. Be uncomfortable. Do what God's saying. And don't let other things take you away from what God's saying. Let me pray. God, I want to thank you that you are good, that you are loving, that you're a God that has so much for us, Lord. So many good things, God. And as we've talked today about the fact that it costs us, the fact that it's not easy, God, we want to remember that you are good. We remember that you have the best in life for us, God, that your life is the best life, that it's not a doom and groom life. It's a life full of joy and full of goodness, God. And we want to live a life that brings your kingdom to earth, God. And so I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we will have the attitude that what you say we do, that we will ask you, what are you saying? And then whatever you say, that that will be what we do, God. I pray that we will be continue to be a church like that, God. That we will listen to you. That what you tell us as a church, we will do, God. We're going to follow in your footsteps, God. And I thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit is the one that leads us and guides us and convicts us and shows us. That you are the Holy One that talks to us. That we don't do this alone and we don't do it out of striving. We don't do it to earn anything, God, but we do it because you 
have the best life. And we want to follow you. We want to serve you. And we want to do whatever you say, God. So speak clearly to us, God. Thank you that you do, that when we ask, you are not silent. And so I pray, God, that we will more and more be people that follow in your footsteps, that say, God, what are you saying? And then when we know what you're saying, the next question is not a question, it's just an action, God, that we will do what you say. And that would be the benchmark of all that we do. What is God saying? That's what I'm doing. So thanks, God, that you lead us and guide us in all of this. Amen.